This is a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Nine, you are tuned to 102.73 Triple R. Time for this week's instalment of Radio Marinara. We are the program about all things wet and salty. My name is Bron Burton. And my name's Dr. Beach. How are you, Dr. Beach? I'm very well on this bright, sunny, crisp Melbourne morning. Yeah, it's nice, isn't it? That's lovely. I like these mornings. Et toi? Ah, <laughs> I'm on the spot now. <laughs> I can't speak French. Where's Julia Zamuro when you need her? I'm fine. Yes. That's good to hear. Yeah. Um, thank you, Tim, very much. Oh, yeah, thank you, Tim. I mean, as ever, the hardest working man in radio, three hours on a Saturday morning, three hours on a Sunday morning, and doing a really nice skull cave on Friday night That's as well. epic. Four till seven, very S- epic. Skull bits. And it seems, I don't know, he keeps playing Neil Young for me as soon as I wake up. It happened this morning. He must It happened mustn't. yesterday. He, he knows. Peter's out of bed. Uh, what's his name? Dr. Beach is out of bed. <laughs> Indeed. Uh, let's play some Neil Young for him. Tim can have a rest now. He's yeah. he's isn't that amazing? Nine hours of radio in three days. Yeah, pretty extraordinary. Anyway, thank you, Tim. Thank you, Tim. Today's program we're going to kick off uh, shortly with Rex Hunter, our very own maritime archaeologist, and he's going to be talking to us about shipwrecks of World War Two in Victoria. In Victoria, fantastic. Yeah. yeah. Kind of Russians, Germans. Getting my head around that. Japanese subs. Yeah, all the stuff that we just didn't know was out there. Yeah. What we do now. From 60 years ago or so. Yeah. Seven years ago. Then uh, our own dive reporter, Terry Allen, is coming in. She's been um, she's been diving and teaching and diving and teaching. She's been doing some cave diving in Mount Gambia. So we're going to talk to Terry about what that's all about. And she wants to talk about sea fossils as well. Nice one. Yeah. Cave diving in Mount Gambia, though, that kind of gets... Oh. Yeah, rough, tough diving, we used to know. When Terry and I used to dive together a long time ago, we used to call it rough, tough diving. You have to be a rough, tough diver or an RTD. An RTD, yeah. So uh, marine fossils as well, so it'll be really interesting. And following that, yes. close the show for about the last half of the show, we have two delightful PhD students who are in their third year studying. We have Lauren and Leticia. Leticia is looking at Antarctic fur seals. 
and she's going to tell us about her exploits, well, the exploits of male Antarctic fur seals and what makes a good, successful male Antarctic fur seal. Is it Antarctic or sub-Antarctic? Actually, Antarctic species oh. is the Antarctic fur seal. Right. But her work has been... Um, well, we can ask her about this, but I'm not just on Kerguelen Island, which is way at the bottom of the Indian Ocean, which I'm not sure if that qualifies oh. as sub-Antarctic or... Antarctic. We can ask her that question because I've, that I've question. wondered that about where that line is. Where does it cease to become Antarctic and become sub-Antarctic? Yeah, it's not too far south in latitude from the bottom tip of New Zealand. Mm. So anyway, we'll ask her. Yeah. And we also have Lauren coming in. Lauren is um, in the same family as Leticia. They have the same um, same supervisor, a guy called Acad- John Arnold. Academic family. Academic family, yeah. John Arnold, who's been on the show before, is their supervisor. And she is working on Australasian gannets at Pope's Eye and some fun stories about that, about where they all go and divorce rates in gannets and size of males, size of females. Spe- I'm looking forward to that conversation Me too. very much. Spectacular birds, the Australasian gannets. Oh, I love gannets. Mm. Yeah. Boobies are kind of closely related, blue-footed boobies that you might see up around the reef. <laughs> And we have gannets. But what? Stop the giggling. No, and it's not what you're thinking. I have every time someone talks about boobies, and it's not what you're thinking. It's the it's the scientist from Lost in Space who used to call his robot bobble-headed booby. Do you Dr. remember that, Doctor Smith? Yes, Doctor Smith. The pain. The pain. <laughs> Lost in space. I, I had this love-hate relationship with that show. I used, to, I used to watch it, you know, after school, but it, it, it always had this sense of trepidation because you know something badass is going to go down, and they're going to get in trouble. And it's like, oh, I loved Lost in Space. It was such a great. I don't day. think I did, but I, nevertheless, I watched it. <laughs> Let's have some weather, and then we've got a little bit of news, and then we're going to kick on because it's a really big show today. Yeah, it's clearly sunny out there. It's going to be 14 degrees today, partly cloudy, patchy early fog in the outer eastern suburbs, medium chance of shade. Hours late in the afternoon and evening. Uh, winds northwest 25 to 35 kilometres an hour. Tomorrow, showers, possible hail 11 degrees. Oh, really? Tomorrow, nice. showers, hail 11. Mm. Take note. I'm, I'm making a mental note there. Tuesday, 12 degrees, possible shower. Wednesday, 12 degrees, showers easing. Thursday, 12 and a shower or two. And if you're heading out on the water today, it is going to be high tide at Port Phillip Heads at 1.23 p.m. And if you Getting out your board, apparently, according to the Sunday Age, the surf coast is offering excellent waves with an easing southwesterly swell and offshore wind. I know that offshores are good for um, surfers. I have mm. picked up that much hanging out with Dr. Surf. A little kick in new swell may be seen. Right, okay. Water temperature is 13 degrees. So it's looking okay, particularly it, on the west coast. Today is the pick of the day. Weather-wise, for the next four or five days by the sound of it. And it's a Sunday, so get out there and enjoy it before you start your working week tomorrow. i got a couple of really quick plugs, and then we're going to go straight into some music. Um, We mentioned this last week, the Victorian Coastal Awards for Excellence 2015. Nominations are open, but they do close at midnight tonight. So if you feel inclined to nominate someone who you consider to be a coastal champion... Uh, As we mentioned last week, six categories, natural environment, education, planning and management, design and building, community engagement and outstanding individual achievement. You can uh, nominate uh, and the time to do that finishes at midnight tonight. So go to their website, vcc.vic.gov.au. We have already put links to that on our Facebook page, but we'll do again today. So it makes it easy for you to find. I can think of a couple of people we've had on the show that I'm wouldn't mind nominating. Yeah, I've been thinking about that too. Alex God, building those artificial reef things. 
Pretty spectacular. Yeah, which is not a hint to anyone out there, but... <laughs> there are many, many others as well. Yeah, there are loads. Uh, quick plug for something happening next week. We're actually going to have um, Joe Mumford on the show. Uh, this relates to National Science Week, which pretty much overlaps almost to the day with our upcoming Radiothon. So Saturday, August 15 to Sunday, August 23rd, um, which is when National Science Week is on. They, the Ricketts Point Friends Group, are having a uh, um, promotion for uh, plans to develop uh, the Beaumaris Yacht Club into a multi-user facility on the foreshore. So this is something that they're doing to raise the profile of MESAC. It's the proposed Marine Education, Science and Community Centre. Looks pretty spectacular. Really looking forward to um, having Joe in to talk to us uh, some more about that. So is the Beaumaris Yacht Club the same thing as the Beaumaris Motor Yacht Squadron? No. Right. They're completely different in different... Um, well, aside from the fact that they're both in Beaumaris yeah. and they're geographically close to each other but completely different okay. clubs with a different purpose as well. Uh, so they're going to have um, loads of experts across many subject areas, marine research, geology, fossil beds, foreshore plants, Port Phillip Bay history, Aboriginal heritage, citizen science and community involvement. Uh, details are on their website, marinecare.org.au uh, and we're going to have both uh, Joe and I'm hoping Ray Lewis will come in as well and talk to us more about that next week. I think at this point... Oh, Dr Beach? Uh, yeah, that just reminds me, talking about Beaumaris um, Motor Yacht Squadron, which I mentioned then. Colin Long, Dr Colin Long from um, Museum Victoria, has a very interesting article in the most recent... Convers- well, in the conversation, so he put that up about a week ago, talking about the importance of the fossil beds there, and we have had people in the past talking about that. Tim Flannery came on, um, and others talking about what a fantastic repository of fossils we have there and how much they have taught us and there is an ongoing application from the Beaumaris Motor Yacht Squadron to expand their facilities there and um, yeah there's a number of people who are concerned about that. Yeah not just here all over the world it has huge global significance this particular site. And even George Gaylord Simpson mentioned it a long time ago back in the 30s. Mm. So get on the conversation and read that if you want to find out more or get an update as to what is happening. We're joined in the studio now by um, Rex. How you going, Rex? Oh, good. How's yourself? The Dr. Beach and Bron? <laughs> very well. Very well. And you come in, you're our in-house maritime archaeologist. Avocational. Yes. Avocational. <laughs> um, and so each time, just in case people are listening and, uh, and sort of maybe haven't caught your segment before, um, you come in regularly and talk to us about shipwrecks and usually it's local shipwrecks and uh, usually something that is um, maybe a particular location, but this time it's about a particular era. Yeah, I thought I'd talk about the um, sort of oh Victoria's involvement in World War Two. Sort of, um, I don't think many people would know what actually happened off the coast of Victoria in the uh, during the nineteen forties when the, we were at war with the um, Germany and. Um, Japan. Mm. There's been a bit of uh, exposure over recent years about the um, some of the Japanese subs that have been found in Sydney Harbour, and I think that took a lot of people by surprise. But obviously, there's um, there's history right here in Victoria as well. Oh, oh yeah, for sure, for sure. Um, uh, I don't think anybody besides uh, myself and my uncle, <laughs> who lived in West Footrail, realised that uh, there was actually a Japanese plane flew over. Over Melbourne during World War Two and flew over the ammunition factory and ordnance factory. Had a good look. They uh, actually shot at it and uh, had it flew back out to um, the uh, back to the submarine. It, it was uh, came out on in uh, off King Island and then went back to Japan. Wow! 
So uh, yeah, got it, that close. It was it was that close. Yeah. yeah. Plus there was um, also Jap- Japanese uh, submarines operating up and down the coast of Victoria and um, up the east coast, and there was um, German mine laying ships operated off the Victorian coasts in the early stages of World War Two. It's pretty extraordinary when you think back to that time, people just going about their business here in Melbourne and all of this activity was going on just so close and no one would have known about it. And obviously it was a, a the, the um, plane that you're talking about w- would have been detected, but it was one of those things would never have been released. No, no, it was, I think it was pretty well kept under wraps. Uh, not so much during the early part. The uh, couple of ships that were sunk off the Victorian coast, they, were, they made the papers, but after that there was a, virtually a blackout on what happened, like ships were sinking and the, no news was getting through to the, uh, the papers. Well, the papers couldn't publish what was actually going on. Mm. Are, there, are there any wrecks that we now know of that uh, are in Port Phillip Bay? I mean, I, there's a couple outside the bay, well, aren't there? It's a side, a side product of World War Two. The uh, Garangi was um, run down and sunk by the Duntroom in uh, early 1940, or sort of late 1940. Uh, and that was a, a minesweeper. So that was a because Duntroom and the uh, Garangi were both both blacked out, and they were um, in the South Channel, just near the uh, near the Eliza Ramson, sort of north, bit north of that. Everybody knows the Eliza Ramson. And the um, Duntroon ran down the Garangi, but they couldn't stop because of the war restrictions and everything else like that. So there was uh, about 20, 23 people or so, told personnel uh, drowned. So that the, the Garangi, Duntroon was obviously an Australian ship. Yeah, yeah. And yeah, the yeah. Garangi was as well. Yeah, yeah. It was um, just to show you how, how uh, unprepared we were, the Garangi was actually a, an ex trawler, steam trawler used for fishing, and they yeah. uh, converted it into a minesweeper to operate in the, uh, on the Victorian coast. <laughs> so. <laughs> so it was a mine... Minesweepers were vessels that literally were just looking for mines, underwater They had, mines. Um, I tell you what's called paravanes, and these were big, um, like a, a paravanes that would spread a, a fishing net, the same sort of idea, but these would have um, blades that would actually cut the moorings for the mines that were dropped. Cool. Wow. So, <laughs> The idea was, mind you, it's uh, you have to be pretty lucky because the paravanes were actually behind the vessel. So if you were drawing too much water, you might actually get it with your own ship before you the paravanes oh. get it. So <laughs> it wasn't the perfect system, but <laughs> wow. So how many um, how many shipwrecks are we talking about in Victoria? Well, that, we've got that relate to World War Two, and broadly, where do we know that they've come from? Well, we've got two 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 main ones are the uh, City Ravel and the uh, which is off Cape Otway, and you've also got the um, Cambridge, which is off the Prom. All oh, right, okay. So, uh, and both both were sunk by uh, German. There's a couple of German um, uh, ships that came out with our mines, and they laid minefields all off the prom, off Cape Otway, um, up the east coast, a series of mines, off Tassie as well. And uh, unfortunately, two two ships, one day apart, both uh, ran into the minefields and sank. The city of Ravel, we, 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 that was discovered not so long ago. Yeah, so we, was, we, um, there was a lot of data from the, the side scans yeah, going. Yeah, the multi-beams, um, yeah. yeah the, um, Dan Iridai Connor was doing yeah, and people yeah. at yeah, Warrnambool. They multi-beamed the, the site as well, yeah. They uh-huh. were, took a, a long while to actually... 
they knew where it was um, yeah. because uh, Risden Beasley actually owned owned the uh, they were a UK salvage firm and they salvaged vessels from all around the world, deep water stuff, and uh, using a big grab. And uh, they they actually owned the, the rights to the vessel. And in about 1988, 89, there was going to be a salvage attempt by United Salvage Company, and they uh, they bought an old um, Ports and Harbours vessel, which was unseaworthy, and they were going to take that out out through the heads and down the prom, uh, up down Cape Otway, and then salvage this 1,500 tonnes of lead on on that. But uh, they were stopped by the authorities. Are there any aircraft wrecks? I, I know that around Warrnambool, uh, around um, Malakuta, there was a Catalina base yeah. during the oh, Second World War. Well, the yeah, sale during World War Two, there was a the air training base there, and quite a few few um, planes crashed in the water. Also, Port Phillip Bay, there was a Point Cook, there was a training another training base. So quite a few crashed in the bay. Most of were salvage, but there still still should be some. Right, and. Uh, Oh, a few years ago, there was a um, fisherman pulled up uh, a prop and part of an engine off, um, off Ocean Grove. So, a couple of, oh, I think it was a Mitchell Mitchell bomber disappeared. So, there's yes, planes all, all up and down our coast as well. And, right. bi- and bits and pieces of the wreckage is there, it's still all being found. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, even today, I, I, it's amazing. I just would have assumed that it had all been sorted out by now, all been located and documented, but not the case. No, no, no. Um, there's actually, well, it's post World War Two, but there's a World War Two plane, uh, Volte Vengeance, off Williamstown. We found that in about 1989. So that crashed. It was doing training exercise in 1946, and they were shooting at the target it was towing and got into trouble, and then crashed, crashed off in the waters off Williamstown. So <laughs> it's a Volte Vengeance, and. Uh, um, now, I'm just wondering, too, about these two particular vessels you were mentioning. So the Cambridge that's just off the prom and the city of Rayville, is that yeah. what it was called, off the Otways. You were saying that there was a, a lot of lead that hadn't been recovered. Yeah. Is, is that still the case? It's all yeah, still there's down still there? 1,500 tonnes of um, lead on board in wow. ingot form. And a friend dived at, oh, within the last two years and they, you can still see the big, big, big ingots on it. Has there been any kind of discussion about recovering it, or is it? Oh, it's protected under the Sorry Shipwrecks right, Act okay. anyway, so um, yep. you you wouldn't stand a chance. No, but oh. the interesting thing is, um, pre well pre atomic bomb lead is actually worth quite a lot because it doesn't have the. Uh, oh, I'm going to say oh, oh. tapes. I'm probably wrong. I, I think no, you're right. right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's striking a chord. Yeah, and, and they and, use uh, it in electronics, so it's actually very, very valuable. It's worth say you're paying. A couple of dollars a kilo for normal lead. For that pre-atomic lead, you're paying like a hundred dollars a kilo. Wow. Yeah, nuclear physics labs love it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So <laughs> the purest. That's yeah. why wreck scavengers from around the world actually, you know, they will plunder Roman wrecks and all sorts of like that because the lead's worth so much money. Wow. <laughs> Now, um, just before we let you go, I just wanted to ask you about the um, Maritime Archaeology Association of Victoria, because you do have an association. Yes, that's that's us. Yeah. Have you, anything coming up? Well, we're still out looking for the... Uh, we're still waiting for some weather to come up, for one, but we're looking for the wreck uh, of the Winchester of Queenslift. That's our sort of project. We're up and running, so we're doing some side scan searching, mowing the lawns. Is that the one with the gold on board? Oh, I can't say. <laughs> I can't say. That's right. <laughs> Did I say that? <laughs> you might not have. Maybe I just 
just made that up. Maybe you Maybe I just imagined it. <laughs> okay, cool. So you're still doing that? Yeah, yeah, still yep. doing that. Oh, there's always lots of research and I've never run out of things to do. So, Fantastic. So keep myself busy. So we're going to have you back on in a few weeks' time. Yes. We'll yeah. see if we can lure you in for our radio song in a couple of weeks. Well, if you don't see me, I may have found some gold. <laughs> You'll be off somewhere else. <laughs> awesome. Thanks, Rex. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Always a joy to have you in. <laughs> we'll, um, we'll catch up with you soon. Right. Welcome, Terry Allen. Hi, Brian. How Hi. are you? I'm good, thanks. Good. Yeah. Good to have you in studio. Yeah, it's a bit chilly outside, but it is nice and sunny, so yeah. it's a good day. And it's warm in here. So, we're catching up with you. You've been um, you've been doing a lot of diving, which is kind of a good thing. <laughs> Madness. <laughs> yeah. And diving in uh, winter in Melbourne is... Um, I, was, I was kind of having a bit of a joke saying we used to call it rough, tough diving. Yes, I heard that. Is, is, is that story. expression still used or was that, um, a, was that a Melbourne Uni underwater club thing? I think it is still a Melbourne Uni thing, but I do try and use it occasionally. So. <laughs> <laughs> I think you have to be a rough, tough diver to dive at this time of the year in Melbourne. Oh. And what's the water temperature at the moment in the bay? Is it must be about 10? Uh, so it's, uh, yeah, 10, I dived Blegarry yesterday, 10 degrees. South Road Hampton, our local dive, is uh, 9 degrees, which is completely insane. That's the coldest water I've ever felt in the bay, actually. Wow. And yeah. you get that ice cream headache when you go in. My what? jaw, I had lock jaw yesterday. <laughs> what's Awful. off South Road Hampton? What, what, what's the fun thing to look at there? In um, the water? It's just, it's quite a nice little flat reef. It's, you get a few pinky snapper, a few nudibranchs. Um, we mainly use it as a training site, but um, it's, it's not too bad you know, get about five meters of depth um yeah and it's close to home for those of us that live in the southern suburbs so yeah it's not too bad nice i did my first ever dive in july um a long time ago on uh, under flinders pier mm. and i remember that feeling of jumping in that was my first time ever you know with scuba equipment on under the, under the water and of course you had to do that training thing to yeah. to get your ticket where you had to take all of your scuba gear off obviously not your wetsuit but underwater but everything and then bit by bit put it all back on again and that feeling that shock feeling when you take your mask off and this mm. ice just kind of blasts your face this freezing cold water my first water dive was when i was getting my certificate many years ago melbourne uni again and for some reason, I, could, you know, I look back on this and I think, my God, you know, they would have been arrested. They took us to the Portsea Hole and I was taken to the bottom of the Portsea Hole, <gasps> which is like 35 metres, mm. and my regulator blocked. <gasps> so I really quickly, this is my first dive in the water, I really quickly had to, you know, practice doing buddy breathing. That's rough, tough diving, Dr. Got Fish. out of there, but it was... Yeah, it kind of put me off for a couple of days. Wow. Yeah. It's all a lot safer and a lot better training now. So <laughs> let's not scare everyone off. <laughs> um, and do you still, I'm, I'm curious because we've kind of headed down this road in terms of training, do students these days, because there, there are probably people out there listening thinking, yeah, I'd like to learn to dive one day. Um, do we still use tables? Is it kind of still kind of tables in front? You have to work out everything from the, you know, the actual dive table we're yeah. talking about times of diving decompression, and, and decompression and, and all that kind of yeah. stuff yeah look we it's a choice now we still choose to teach it because we like people to actually understand what's happening why you know the nitrogen in your blood and and, and all that so it gives people a good idea and look if their computer most people wear a dive computer now um, or they're trained with a dive computer so it's good to actually know like if something goes wrong that you, you can still kind of roughly work out what's happening so some some places don't teach they just go straight to computer now um, but we still like to teach 
tables. Yeah. And it's, They're it's, not that hard. No. Yeah. It's like, I guess it's the same sort of thing that we have the internet at our disposal, but it's still good to learn your times tables. Well, yeah, that's right. A calculator. I don't know whether kids learn times tables anymore. I hope they do. Yeah, they do. <laughs> right. <laughs> Some do anyway. Now, we want to talk to you about cave diving because you've been mm. in Mount Gambia. Yes, I, uh, my partner Jeff and I actually just this morning are starting a new course uh, teaching at home and I'll just do a little quick cheerio to the Get Under Club. Uh, and so we uh, have been at Mount Gambier f- a few weekends and uh, teaching cave diving. So we do quite an extensive training for that. Um, lots of practice of skills and things in a warm, clear uh, pool, first of all. And then we head to Mount Gambier and we do six uh, dives over there and uh, lots of fun. Awesome. And can you talk us through what would a, what would a standard cave dive be? If you're going to Mount Gambia. Yeah, so we're lucky. Mount Gambia is a bit unusual. We have quite a different number of levels. Um, so the bottom level is called cavern or sinkhole. And if you've ever watched the beautiful documentaries, um, you might have seen the cenotes in Mexico. So we have that sort of thing. We have big, deep uh, holes, uh, 40, 50, 60 metres deep. Um, some of them are crystal clear, the, me- the best visibility you'll ever see. Um, and some of them are not. <laughs> some of them are 11 degrees, some are 15 degrees. And then we have other caves that are very extensive, big, long networks. Uh, one of them, Tank Cave, is 11 kilometres of different um, uh, underwater um, tunnels. Wow. Yeah, so it's pretty good. So those tunnels are not connected to the surface. Well, they are connected, but they're like tubes which have got rock above them, so you're really going through a true tunnel. Yeah, yeah. So if you imagine almost like a... um like a capillary branching out you know like a so there is only one entrance at tank cave some other caves will have multiple entrances but there are actually a couple of um holes where you can come up and you've got an airspace and one of them we teach all the new divers where that is so if they get into problems that that's one place they could head to and there's a couple of other small um, holes that are old cave entrances and what's really exciting about these old cave entrances is that's where old animals were and that's where they went and died Um, so leading me on to the other thing I was Mm. going to talk to you about was the fossils so we get two types of fossils in the caves and we've had uh, megafauna so they've actually recovered a giant um, kangaroo skull oh wow yeah so that was mind-blowing and that's actually you can now see it it's in Mount Gambier I think at the Lady Nelson um, tourist uh, information Uh, but lots of other um, you know uh, scapula femurs um, jaws uh, teeth, um, and then we also, of course, get some uh, marine fossils as well. How cool! Yeah, so that's you know that's pretty amazing to see things like that. Oh, yeah, go talk to I'm you. really pleased that you can still teach cave diving. I'm just thinking how I mean, if one were to think of a really dangerous thing to do, potentially dangerous thing to do, mm. then cave diving would have to be at the top of that list. And there are so many things that we've been unable to do in the last decade, mm. two decades, because of risk yeah do people just sign their lives away to you (laughs) well the first 15 minutes at our house this morning was spent doing paperwork i have to say oh god yeah yeah, it just must bury you yeah we just have a lot of liability releases and and everything i mean potentially yes it is a dangerous sport but um overall it's actually 
very safe. Um, there's a lot for the number of hours done. Um, open water diving is probably more dangerous. Um, we we have incredibly tough training. Um, you talk about buddy breathing and things yeah. like that. I mean, that's not taught in normal courses anymore. But we oh, put really? people no no because you've just got your alternate air source. So oh, you just okay. but we put people under a lot of pressure. We give them a stress test, take their masks off say, okay, one of you is out of air and you have to buddy breathe and follow a line. So we, we really try to stress them much, much more than we hope that they would ever get into in a real situation. So a lot of people like doing the cave diving course because it actually is, is just good training for general diving. Yeah. Um, you had um, talking about shipwrecks and things before. So we get a lot of wreck divers actually like to come and do the course because it teaches good buoyancy, not how, you know, not silting up, how to run a line in a ship. Um, how to get in and out of small spaces. Yeah, yeah, and how to look after yourself and your buddy. It's all about a buddy team. Mm. So we never dive alone, always in a team. Because I'd imagine one of the things you have to be really aware of is, is like all the pipes, the you know the, the hoses that you've got attached to your regulator and getting to your, yeah. to your tank, yeah. and that would transpose itself nicely to wreck diving. Yeah, yeah, and we have backup of everything. So we have three lights. We have a primary light and two backups. We always have two tanks, two regulators, uh, two knives if we have to cut something. So everything is completely redundant. And that's why we have a buddy. So if your brain goes for some reason, do something stupid, you've got your buddy there to say, hang on, hold on, let's let's do this. So it really is, you know, obviously, as you're saying, it potentially dangerous, but safety is such an enormous part of the training. It's like risk management, just like everything else. Yeah, yeah. but it's fun as well. So, yep. yeah. Sounds awesome. <laughs> yeah. A couple of quick things. Um, coming up, uh, what, have, what have you got coming up in terms of diving sort of over the next month or so? Oh, you probably don't want to know, but... Uh, <laughs> oh, is it some something <laughs> tropical, amazing again? exotic location? Well, you were just talking about shipwrecks and World War Two, and um, in September, very fortunate, I'm going uh, back to uh, Bikini Atoll, and there is uh, all the wrecks that were sunk when they tested the uh, atomic bombs um, in the Pacific, and probably one of the most famous is the Nagano wreck. So if you're a fan, like I am, of the war movies, a Toratora, Torah, and you've got uh, General Yamamoto standing up there on the bridge. That's actually where we get to dive. Absolutely mind-blowing place. And it is still a little bit radioactive, but uh, still safe. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. How brilliant. Yeah. And I think you and I at this point in time, Terry, should give a plug to um, an article which is coming up in the next edition of the trip. Oh, yes. Yeah. yeah. I kind of forgot about that because we yeah. did it a while ago. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I guess for subscribers out there, when you get your copy of the trip, um, open it up. I can't. I don't know what page it is, but it's somewhere near the front. Near the front, I think. Which is pretty cool. Um, and really just profiling some of the local, colourful marine life, underwater marine life that we have here, yeah. sort of at our doorstep, both in Western Port and in Port Phillip Bay. All the colours of the rainbow. and I mean, I, as you know, put up quite a few of my local photos just on Facebook. And uh, friends that aren't divers, they just cannot believe that we have these critters in our own bay. Yeah, Spectacular. Yeah. Hey, thanks. No worries. It's great to have you in studio. Okay. Yeah. We'll, we'll drag you away from your cave diving students <laughs> more often. A big shout out to them as well. Are you going to stick around? Yeah, I will. Fantastic. No We're joined in the studio now by two PhD students in their third year with um, Associate Professor John Arnold, who's at Deakin University. We have Lauren, Lauren Angel. And we have Leticia, Leticia Kernligan. Have I got that right? How do you pronounce your name, Leticia? Oh, Kernligan. Kernligan. Yes, that's a French <laughs> name. That's a French name. 
Lauren, you're working on Australian gannets. Australasian. Australasian yeah. gannets, in primarily in Port Phillip Bay. And Leticia, you're working on subantarctic or Antarctic fur seals. Yep. Let's talk about the gannets first. So, Lauren, you're, I gather you're looking at differences between males and females or in fact if there are any differences between those yeah exactly so males and females for a long time we've assumed that they're the same size and doing the same thing and we've treated the population as a whole Uh, but my research has found that the females are actually slightly heavier and as a consequence they're actually traveling further from the colony than the males and the males are being quite lazy and staying inside Port Phillip Bay and using the dolphins to help them get an easy feed. We didn't mention this at the beginning, but the colony you're looking at is the one at Pope's Eye. Pope's Eye, yeah. Which is... Just off Queenscliff. Yeah, just off Queenscliff. Yeah. That's cool. I, so, the can I just go back a step? So, yeah. how do they do that? So, you're saying that the, they're using the dolphins to get an easy feed. Is they just kind of waiting for the, the bits to kind of float off onto the surface? No, so they actually wait for the dolphins to bring the fish up near the surface where they can get them. And they're going just to the uh, dolphin sanctuary just off Sorrento. Uh, so, the dolphins are hanging out there, staying away from the boats and bringing the fish up and the gannets just hang around in the air, gliding, waiting for some fish to come up to the top and then <laughs> plunge dive. And but this is only the boys, only the males are doing Only the that. boys are doing this. The females are travelling a lot further. Those lazy slugs, those guys. Oi! <laughs> <laughs> it's not That's unusual. We're not going to make this a gender debate. <laughs> it sure does. So the females are going further out into, into Bass Strait. Yeah, yeah. So it's a lot deeper. They're still using dolphins and things like sharks, tuna, seals to bring the food up as well. Uh, but it's not as predictable as the dolphins inside the bay. And yet and yet, the females are heavier than the males, so they're travelling further, which might sort of suggest that they're using more energy, but they end up being heavier. Yeah, so the, the concept is that because they've put in more effort into raising a chick, um, producing the egg, that they're more invested in that chick and they're going to travel further and try and get a higher quality prey than the males. <laughs> So how do you know that they're going all the way? Are you there on a ship with binoculars? Do you track them somehow? Yeah, so we're, we're catching them at Pope's Eye when they're on the nest uh, and putting GPS on their tails, and that will, allows us to track them for up to 10 days and see exactly where they're going. I'm just wondering, because, um, you know, we go diving at Pope's Eye and yeah. see the gannets there. How Are they there all the time or are they only there during nesting? As far as we're aware, they're there all the time. We know they're definitely there during the nesting, but during the winter months when they're not breeding, we have done some tracking over the winter, uh, but the accuracy of the devices is a lot smaller than GPS, and so we know they're hanging around off the Cape Otway, but we don't know whether they're actually coming back onto the platform frequently. Lauren, how did you get into this line of research? Did you, did you kind of do the, oh, I guess what I see as a conventional line, sort of through an undergraduate and then an honours degree and then to a PhD? Yeah, and so, yeah, I, I did my undergrad at James Cook Uni in Townsville on marine biology, became obsessed with penguins and other seabirds and made my way down south to work on the penguins and the gannets. I was going to say, you wouldn't get many penguins up at, in Townsville. No, that was the problem. <laughs> <laughs> Had to come to Victoria for them. Wow, because you've done the reverse of what so many of my peers did, which was do their undergraduate here and then go north. And that it seems to be a common perception that, you know, if you want to do marine biology, you have to go to Queensland. But And you've done the reverse. How, how, was, yeah. that, how was that sort of experience for you? Um... Cold. Logical, Cold. logical. <laughs> it was. 
it wasn't really a choice. I, I had to work with little penguins and other seabirds and Bass Strait is the best region to work on them because it's such an important region for Australia. Yeah. So you did an honours to ground little penguins? I did, yeah. Tracking them from Gabriel Island, just near the border of New South Wales, Victoria. And cool. then transitioned into the larger gannets. Yeah, I just want to drag you back to the gannets for a second. Yeah. So that you're looking at males and females and you've now found out that the females were in fact heavier, so we didn't realise that in the past, so there yeah. are these dramatic differences between the males and the females. Do they pair up for a significant amount of time? So are they couples, are they lifelong couples? Or yeah. they have been thought to be monogamous, so they stay together for a lifetime. Uh, but there has been some research done on the Australasian gannets in New Zealand and they found their divorce rate is about 40%. <laughs> it's not sure whether it's because... So, so there's a healthy population of divorce lawyers, of family lawyers for gannets <laughs> out there. Definitely. Uh, we're not sure if it's because they're choosing to change partners or whether the partner dies and they have to pair up again. Um, but they do know if they change partners, they have less reproductive success. So they're less likely to have a successful chick after changing partners. So it's in their interest to stay together. Are the ones in New Zealand, they, they're the same species, are they? Same species, and the New Zealand ones actually come over to Victoria for their winter holiday. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> so I guess that this work, I mean, not only is it fascinating and it's fun for you to do and fun for people to read, and we all love gannets, but I suppose it's very important for maintaining populations of gannets and being aware of where they are feeding and the, and the areas that we have to particularly look after if we're interested in you know, preserving gannet populations. Definitely. Um, with the EAC, it's really becoming a lot stronger. We've got about four times the global warming rate in Bass Strait with the sea surface temperature than anywhere else in the world. It's it's very quickly warming. Wow. Did, you can, got, can I just stop you there? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Did you see the look on all three of our faces? <laughs> yeah, four times the global rate we're seeing down um, in Bass Strait and around Tasmania. And, and why is that? Because of the East Australian current? Yeah, it's becoming a lot stronger and it's persisting further south. We're already starting to see the lower trophic levels moving further south, so invertebrates and fish species that you don't expect to see in Tasmania are now turning up. Is there a gradient effect, do we know about this? Sorry, we're really putting you on the spot here now. <laughs> We've kind of moved away from um, from Gannett's talking about um, climate change and, and warming waters. Is it a is it a is like an accumulative effect or like a, a gradual effect or do we just find there's this kind of big pulse of four times yeah um i'm not 100 percent sure that's a a hard question for you i I just read the papers and see their numbers and write that down but um yeah it's about 2.2 degrees celsius change in the water in the last 50 years it's a big increase wow that's um, yeah, that's staggering. Yeah. yeah. So if we if we can understand what the birds are doing, we can actually start to manage that because obviously the females are going to be a lot more impacted being out in Bass Strait where they're seeing these changes compared to Port Phillip Bay which is quite stable um, considering the the fish populations inside. Uh, we should see less of a change inside. So the males are pretty good. I've got Dr. Bron Burton in the studio with me oh. and we are also joined by Dr. Lauren? Terry Allen. Dr. Terry Allen. And we've got Letitia and we've got Lauren. We've just been talking to Lauren about her fascinating PhD project looking at Australasian gannets. And now we're going to turn our attention with Letitia to start talking about her project on Antarctic fur seals. 
Welcome, Leticia. Thank you. <laughs> it's great to have you here. We were just saying um, while we were listening to that station announcement that you guys have got two of the coolest PhD projects I think I've ever heard of. So um, uh, Antarctic fur seals. Yeah. So, Leticia, you, do you go down to the Antarctic, Davis, those areas, to work on the Antarctic fur seals? Or what's, you, your, what's your field site? Yeah, I was very lucky to be able to go there. So um, my field site is actually in sub-Antarctica. So it's an island called Kerguelen. And it's um, roughly halfway th- uh, between South Africa and Antarctica. So it's a... But way sm- down the bottom of the Indian Ocean. Yes, exactly. So it's <laughs> a small island in the middle of nowhere, basically. We were talking about um, earlier that where is that line? So where do we go from Antarctic to sub-Antarctic? And it's funny because you think of sub-Antarctic as being below and geographically it almost feels like it's above, but we're talking in terms of... Um, uh, latitude, I suppose, aren't we? Yes, so actually it's determined by the um, sea surface temperature, so there is a kind of a line where the temperature drops, so that's the limit between Antarctica and sub-Antarctica, so that line is called the polar front, so in terms of latitude you have uh, Antarctica and then uh, sub-Antarctica and then subtropic and then the tropic. So Wow, so with climate change technically that sub-Antarctic zone could potentially extend. Absolutely because um, the line always changed like every year and uh, with the global warming it's going like further south wow. and um, that yeah, can be an issue for all the birds and the uh, penguins and fur seal uh, just as uh, gannets. Yeah. yeah. So with the fur seals you're looking at I understand, correct me if I'm wrong here, but what makes a good male successful Antarctic fur seal? Is exactly. that correct? Yeah, I'm trying to find out what makes a good male in so Antarctic So is, is it big pecs, <laughs> you know, nice hair? You know, is good, nice, taste, good taste in music. Good taste in good music. Good taste in I, I music, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, because in the Antarctic fur seal, um, males have... Uh, bunch of females, a harem of females. So some males have 20, 30, 40 females and some have only one or two or even zero females. So there's a big like contrast between them and it's only like the bigger male that have access to females. So they are up to 200, 220 kilos rather than the females only like 35 kilos. So there's a the males like grow much larger to fight between them and only like the uh, winners can have access to females. So my question for my PhD is trying to understand why this male has a lot of female and this one next to him has no female. So is it because of the size, but they are pretty much like the same size or what is that the behavior? And yeah, just try to understand what what the factors. So, so how are you going about doing this? How are you how are you measuring what makes it good reproductive success? In it? Well, obviously, reproductive success is recognised by the number of yeah, females that he gets to hang out with and the number of babies they produce together. But I, I suppose you're looking at it in a much more sophisticated fashion. Well, so to have an idea of their reproductive success, ideally you'd like to do some paternity tests, so look at the genetics, but it's very difficult in the field. So I was 
So I spent like two months in a fur seal colony and um, every day I was counting how many female there are in each um, of the males harem. So I was following about 40, um, sorry, 80 males. So first I had to recognize them individually. So I put some paint. I was doing some body painting on fur seal <laughs> <laughs> with some paint that I actually bought in burnings. <laughs> and um, then like every day I was uh, going into the colony counting how many females they have and uh, then to estimate their body size I took some pictures and uh, with some lasers that just give me an indication of uh, size to have a size scale in the picture and then I'm looking at their body condition to see if the bigger males have um, more females like larger harem and then I also try to understand why some males are bigger than others why they have a better body condition so I'm looking at the diet so because some males during outside the mating period some males are doing some migration they go to Antarctic waters, so below the polar front where they feed on krill but some of them are actually going north in the subtropic and some don't migrate at all so there are some big differences in terms of uh, migrating uh, migration strategy and feeding strategy so to look at what they're doing I had to take a small biopsy sample a bit of skin and hair how did you do that with these giant male first seals do you just like sneak up behind them and just kind of grab a bit and run away really fast I wish I could <laughs> but uh, because they're um, fighting each other so they're very aware of who is entering into the territory and like when you're there, you know exactly where the territory starts and ends. And these dudes are huge, aren't they? They are 200 kilos, very <laughs> territorial. Wow. Yeah, so actually what I had to do is I had like um, like two meter long uh, pole, like stick, and I had like a biopsy tip at the end. And I had to enter in the territory to challenge the male. And then the male would like, chase me very angrily and I had to stood with my two uh, meter long pole and poke him when he was like <laughs> charging me so that's a kind of a, a fight so I had to win the fight obviously so I had to because it's all about hierarchy who is above who and because when you work with them you're part of this hierarchy ranking and you want to be on the top very top so so yeah. you got to have a lot of confidence yes uh, and you have to yell at them and say okay I'm only 60 kilos but I'm larger than you and you'd better not to <laughs> challenge me <laughs> and when you say you take a you've got a biopsy stick that's not like punching a bit of flesh out or is, is it or is yes, it taking it a bit is. of fur yeah 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 so it's it's a very tiny bit of skin and when you see them fighting each other they have like big uh, scars and yeah, yeah so it's not the it's not an issue for them. It's more like, actually, the more they react is to the the fight itself because they feel that they lose a fight rather than they're in pain or whatever. They're a little so. bit humiliated. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm just wondering, just uh, you explain to us what you're doing day to day. But I mean, how cold is it? Are you just sitting there writing things down? Are you out in the open? Like, what's the physical nature of your day to day work? Oh, you mean in the field? In the field, sorry. Yes, uh, it's uh, cold, very cold and uh, rainy and windy. But uh, it's during summer, so it's not that bad. And so there is a research uh, station, um, so the base camp. But my study site is was a, a one-day hike oh. uh, away. So we were hiking there, and there's a small hut, and we stay like two months in a small hut, like two between two and four people. 
It's been awesome to have you in. I could talk for another half hour, but we're out of time and the doctors are going to come in and we kind of need to let them or they might come and, I don't know, beat us up with their golf clubs. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. So, Lauren, Angel and Leticia Kernogelin, thank you very much for joining us. Uh, Lauren and Leticia are PhD students in their third year with um, John Arnold at Deakin University at Burwood. It's been fascinating talking to you about gannets and Antarctic fur seals yeah. and we'd like to have you back yes, please. in a year or so once you wrap all this up and you get your thesis handed in. <laughs> yeah, well, thanks for having us. Will you come yeah, back? Thank you. Be yeah, definitely. Great to have you back. Fantastic. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.